Recovery Elevator, episode 422. It is mental energy. That is exactly what it is. It just took up so much time, so much energy. And I spent so long trying to moderate as well, which is exhausting. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Susanna. She's 42 from Hampshire, England, and took her last drink on April 29th, 2022. Great job, Susanna. Join Recovery Elevator in Atlanta, Georgia over Memorial Day weekend on Sunday, May 28th at 6 p.m. for a fun conference-style event at the Marriott in Alpharetta. This event is all about getting your connection on, and it's going to be a lot of fun. You can even stick around after for some silent disco. Spouses or loved ones are encouraged to attend as well. Registration is open, and there's a link in the show notes where you can get more information as well as to register. Thank you, Robin. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. And before we get any further in this episode, let's hear from Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the United States with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there's still a stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slips or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with tips for handling a relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next steps in their recovery journey. Okay, let's get started. Today, I wanted to share what Odette wrote in a recent Recovery Elevator newsletter. Quick plug, Odette, who hosted the Recovery Elevator podcast for seasons two and three, sends out two newsletters per month, and each one contains a snippet on how to boost your sobriety. You can subscribe to the newsletter on the homepage of the recoveryelevator.com website. Odette is a fantastic writer, and her content is spot on. Okay, here's what she wrote, which is titled, The Pursuit of Happiness. She says, Do you think sobriety would make you happy? If so, how is that working out for you? I don't know about you all, but I most definitely thought that entering the journey of recovery would solve all of my problems. I thought that I could just tackle my issues and I would have it all figured out. In a couple of months, it will be 10 years since I joined the recovery arena and I keep learning about myself. I keep peeling layers of the onion. I keep encountering new issues and facing new challenges. Of course, the benefits of sobriety exist. However, I've had to really come to terms with accepting that arriving at happiness isn't the outcome of all this. With all of this time in recovery, I have even been forced to explore how I define happiness. What did I think being happy was before? 
Is it the same as what I think of it now? To be honest, when I started recovery, I genuinely thought that I could avoid or walk around negative feelings. I didn't think that being in them or going through them would have anything to do with my well-being. I thought that I could learn how to be happy all the time. I thought I would know how to control my thoughts and feelings. Now that I look back, I think I was trying to become a robot. Why? Because vulnerability still scared me. And I really thought humans were not supposed to have bad feelings if they were doing things right. It has taken me years to understand that bad days are part of a good life. I have had so many bad days. Accepting these as part of the process has truly allowed me to tap into happiness. For me, happiness today means peace. It means being in the moment and being aware of all the blessings I have. Happiness means I'm able to stay grounded and less stuck in the past, less stuck in triggers. Happiness means I feel all of the feelings, even the not so fun ones, because they are all part of a full life. I was taught to turn every frown upside down, and every time negative feelings were upon me, I thought something was wrong with me. If you are on this journey and you don't find yourself floating on the pink cloud every day, you are doing this right. The only way out is through. Happiness is imperfect. Happiness holds hands with acceptance. The quicker we allow things in, the quicker we can process them and let them go. You can't dodge negative emotions. They'll come right back at you like a boomerang. For the last few months, I've been thinking about these words I read somewhere. The good news about bad days is that they end. And the bad news about good days is that they also end. The only constant to life and this journey is change. The challenge is to accept where you're at, to stop adding resistance, to stop trying to control and micromanage yourself. As Melanie Beattie says, to flow with life. Odette. Wow. Again, that was from the newsletter that Odette writes. Uh, great stuff, Odette. So we try to make this podcast real, authentic, and to give you an accurate idea of what sobriety and recovery is. This snippet from Odette about happiness and sobriety is absolute truth. Listeners, sobriety is not a panacea, but sobriety is choosing life, all of it. If you ride an addiction long enough, it will give you two choices, life or death. If you're listening now, you're choosing life or to live. That's great news. So sobriety does not equal happiness. Sobriety does not solve all your problems. But sobriety gives you the chance, and this takes time and work, to build a life where happiness knocks on the door more frequently. More importantly, sobriety changes your view on what happiness is. Happiness morphs into knowing that everything is going to be all right, regardless of what is going on in your life. Your happiness, well-being, and joy are no longer tied to fleeting moments, but more anchored to life, anchored to living life, to experiencing life. I love the line that Odette wrote that says, happiness holds hands with acceptance. Now the school of addiction teaches perhaps the most important lesson a human being can learn, which is total acceptance. It teaches us to cultivate inner compassion for ourselves, which then transmits to others. We realize we cannot self-diatribe ourselves into sobriety or happiness, that for true growth to take place, we have to accept and love all parts of ourselves. As Odette said at the end of the newsletter, the true challenge is to accept where you're at and to stop adding resistance. Now, the other day, I walked out of the vet for my dog's annual visit to see I had a flat tire. I located the jack, pulled out the spare, and changed the flat tire. 
Keep in mind I live in Montana. It was the middle of winter and it was probably 10 degrees outside, which is cold in my opinion. I have Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth on my coffee table and I try to read a couple pages daily while I have my morning coffee. A couple days after changing the flat tire, I read a passage in A New Earth where the author talks about how changing a flat tire in a rainstorm is no fun, but if you add mental resistance, it makes it much worse. Now, listeners, I didn't quite realize this win in sobriety until I read this passage. Not once during the tire changing process did I utter the words, first COVID, now this, or did I look up into the heavens and yell, why? I just changed the tire. I'd accepted the situation and I changed the tire. Now, I still have work to do with this, but it's becoming more of the norm in my life. Sobriety taught me to accept that the tire was flat and that I had to change it in freezing temperatures without adding any mental resistance or complaining. Before we close, I wanna ask you, what areas in your life are you not accepting? And maybe it's quitting drinking and that's totally fine. Where are you adding mental labels of this should not be happening or come on? The school of sobriety is going to teach you the most important lessons of life, love and acceptance. It will keep teaching you these lessons until you have accepted. That's the lessons we need to learn. So again, I want to say thank you, Odette, for these wonderful words. Great job. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Susanna. How many times have you felt like you can't make positive changes in your life if you aren't feeling 100%? I know that for me, I don't always feel like I'm at my best. I've learned through therapy, though, that not feeling my best does not equal to not feeling empowered. I can accept my emotional wobbles and still feel empowered to take care of myself and my mental health. We have agency. We can get to the point where we trust ourselves enough to move forward in the right direction. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional cost. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Susanna. Susanna, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. There's been signs of spring in the last week in North Dakota. So we're coming to an end of this miserable winter. So oh, yeah, same here. I just love the the daffodils are coming up. It's um yeah, hopefully that's behind us, that cold snap. That's right. We're on our way. Uh anyway, this is probably like the fourth intro in a row that I've referenced our winter weather, but <laughs> It just goes on forever. Can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? Yes, I have been sober coming up to 10 months next week. 10 months. That's amazing. How do you feel? Oh, so good. So good. And I'm amazed that I've, you know, got this far um, when I, you know, was struggling to do sort of two weeks at one time. So yeah, 10 months. I'm really proud of myself. Well, 10 months is a big deal. And I think that's fantastic. And a lot of us have those moments where we, are approaching a milestone or get to a milestone and it's just kind of like, whoa, this is, this has been a little bit. And like, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. 
So nice job, sister. Thank you. Uh, before we get into it, can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, married, kids, anything like that? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yes. So, um, yeah, my name's Susanna. I'm 42 and I live in the south of England. Um, so I am married um, to a wonderful guy and we have three boys. So I'm pretty busy with them. They are 11, nearly six and two and a half. So, uh, so full on. Um, and I own my own company. So I um, work in luxury concierge, which again is, is busy, but, um, I love it. It's really good. So good for my organizational skills, um, but busy and, um, and yeah, for fun. So I've got two dogs. We've got a black lab, um, and then a miniature dachshund. He's really badly behaved. And um, so, yeah, a lot of dog walking. And I love the garden. I'm really getting into my gardening. And, um, yeah, I I take quite a lot of pride in my garden. And I'm going to start doing some different vegetables this year. And, yeah, I really enjoy my time there. But, obviously, I don't get a huge amount of free time with uh, three boys. And I'm a football mum. I sure, soccer. I should say a soccer mum, shouldn't I? (laughs) I've seen Ted Lasso. I know what you mean when you say football. (laughs) Three boys. Good night. Uh, 11, six and two and a half. That's a, yeah. Our kids are a little older now, but I can, God bless you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If I fall asleep halfway through, that's why. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And I do have a a follow-up question about your garden. Is there a, we, we used to do a garden years ago and, and I love them and we're thinking about, I don't know, we'll see what happens this summer, but do you have like, a, a favorite thing, be it a vegetable or flowers, or like a pride of your garden that you enjoy the most? Oh, that's a really good question. I do you know what I love roses and I've got quite a few different types of roses. Um, but it's very much a work in progress. We moved in sort of four and a half years ago and it was not great. So we're still doing a lot, but it takes time, you know, with a garden. It's one you've got to see the the big picture. It's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> Just like a sobriety. Ah, see what we're doing here? <laughs> Connecting the dots. I like yeah. it. Perfect. All right, Susanna. Well, again, thanks for being here. And I'm excited to hear your story. So uh, let's get into it. Let's let's do what we came here to do and, and talk about your relationship with alcohol. Let's start from the beginning. Maybe childhood, what, what exposure might have looked like. And then we'll just work our way to today. Yeah. So, um... So I had quite a privileged upbringing um, in, in in England, and I I had two. I've got two older sisters. Um, my parents had me a little bit later than the other two, so they're uh, nine and eleven years older than me. Um, and I had a really happy childhood. So I can't, you know, blame any of um, any of that on my drinking at all. Um, I was sent to boarding school pretty early. Um, which was quite common, you know, in the eighties really. And I, I was, um, I started a couple of weeks before I turned eight and I, you know, having children that sort of age now just seems crazy to me, but, um, it was quite normal. Um, but I was really, really homesick and I really struggled with that. And I was also quite badly bullied, um, by some, um, older girls. And there was one time in particular where I remember, um, like running to the toilets and um, they were throwing stones over the like cubicles 
Um, and I was, yeah, probably eight or nine at the time. Um, and I didn't say anything to anybody. Um, and I also got kicked quite badly by one of the boys. Um, and um, when I came home at the weekend, my mum saw in the bath that I had a bruise all over my stomach and she was asking, you know, what it was. And I didn't want to tell her. Um, and I think I did tell her eventually. And I was actually moved to a different school when I was 11. Um, and that's when the fun starts, really. I had a great time. I was at an all girls boarding school um, from 11 and I met some really lovely friends there. And uh, yeah, we had a laugh and I you know, I was pretty popular and um, there was a lot of drinking going on, actually, probably around the age 13-ish. But I didn't really get involved with that, actually. I stayed away from the drinking. I wasn't necessarily that I didn't want to get into trouble, but I just didn't really... I, I was quite anti-drinking, actually, and also anti-smoking, which was weird. I'm very much like a classic, you know, drinker. I'm all or nothing, really. So I was quite anti and didn't want to get involved in it. You know, my parents sort of drink socially. There was no issues with um, alcoholism at all in my family. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of my, um, you know, up until sort of my mid-teens. Um, and I started drinking, I guess, in sort of pubs as you do um, at weekends when I was 16-ish. There was nothing spectacular at all. I didn't have one of those, oh, my first taste of alcohol was, you know, amazing. And it wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to make myself, you know, more popular or more confident. I just, you know, socially drank and I had a pretty good handle on it, you know, until I was probably got into my like early 30s. So although I, you know, did a bit of binge drinking, I guess, in my 20s, which I think is quite common. Um, I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, it definitely is, you know, that sort of Friday, Saturday, big nights, um, especially when you start working in your early 20s. And um, for me, things started to go a little bit wrong in, in, in my life rather than necessarily in my drinking. Um, so my mum died very suddenly when I was um, 22. And that was a really, you know, terrible time for me. It was a huge shock. Um, she had um, undiagnosed leukemia. And that totally knocked me off my feet, really. I was very, very close to her. Um, and it, she was this linchpin as well of my family. So she kind of held us all together. And it was it was a really, really tricky time. And I felt quite isolated um, and alone. And I didn't really know what how to how to process those feelings of grief at all. I think now as you get older, you know, you're you have lots of friends, don't you, who start to lose parents. And that becomes, you know, normal when they're you know, in their 70s, 80s, 90s. But then, you know, my mom was in her 50s and it's just no one really knew how to handle it, actually, at all. So I was kind of left to just sort of get on with things. And and I did, you know, and I probably did drink a bit too much um, just to cover up and cover up that grief more than anything else. So um, this was in uh, 20, 2003 um, and the following Boxing Day. So uh, 2004, um, I was actually in Thailand and um, was involved in the Boxing Day tsunami. I was on an island called Koh Phi Phi and I was right in the middle of that island, which was, um, it, it was just the most terrifying thing that's, 
really ever happened to me. So I was right in the middle of that. And the whole island is a very small island and it got completely demolished. Mm. Um, and it was just devastation, really. I had no idea what was going on. And we were there and it was before, I mean, it wasn't before mobile phones, but we didn't have, you know, the how how we use mobile phones now. Yeah. And I had a mobile phone like in my bag, but obviously that, you know, we lost that. And yeah, that was a really big, a big part of my you know the trauma really from that um was a really big part of my um my 20s and I hadn't dealt with the grief from my mum and then that on top of it I I just felt that real kind of victim why is this happening to me this isn't fair you know why I can't deal with it basically and um things just kind of progressed really from then I I then got involved in, I was in a really good relationship, actually, I should say at the time with the, the guy I was with um, in Thailand, who was fantastic. But, you know, I, I started sabotaging that relationship, attention seeking. Um, and I and that progressed to pretty much most of my 20s, just being in these really toxic relationships. Um, I had issues now I can see, you know, that I really had abandonment issues from from a young age and after what happened with my mom, that just sort of spiraled, spiraled out of control. I just want to take a minute to acknowledge, you know, up until this point in your story, what you've gone through. I think, I think losing a parent just in general, you know, I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet, but just, I mean, obviously that's a, that's an incredible hardship regardless, but especially at, at such a, a young age, I mean, 22, if we, if we can take a minute and bring ourselves back to our early 20s, I mean, those are very integral years to our life. We're doing a lot of developing and figuring out who we are. And then just to have that sudden loss, I just, I, I'm sorry that that happened. And I just want to acknowledge like what, what an impact that can have uh, on a person. And then also, you know, you mentioned that she was the, you know, the linchpin kind of that matriarch role in your family. And I've got to believe there's probably a bit of a, a secondary loss as well of, you know, not just losing her as an individual, but if, if she was part of that glue that held, held you guys together, that things are just, things are different. We've had, um, you know, I remember when my parents divorced, it's not the same thing at all, but there was like the loss of that relationship. And then that whole dynamic shifted as well. Yeah. Just like the way that we do things, the way that we get together, the way that we interact. So there's a, some, I don't know what the appropriate word would be, like aftershocks or subsequent things that, that we just don't anticipate. And I think sometimes they're, I, th I think sometimes those things aren't acknowledged, but, but they're there. Absolutely. There's a huge shift, you know, because everyone is dealing with things in their own way and everyone has a different relationship with that person. And, mm -hmm. you know, it is similar to a divorce. You're splitting a family and everything is new. And, you know, at that age, you think you're invincible, don't you? And you have no concept. Well, I didn't have any concept really of of death. And I'd been pretty sheltered um, from it. And, you know, up until that that age. And it does. It just um, completely you, you come to a you come to a, a sudden like junction in your life, really. And everything changes. It's just like the everything's different. You know, you look at the world differently. And I, yeah, I certainly did. and. Yeah, the dy dynamics in my my family changed then. 
Um, and, you know, that was coming up to 20 years ago. So it was a long time ago. And things still haven't, you know, things still aren't the same, certainly. Yeah, I just I just wanted to acknowledge that if there, if we have any listeners who've had similar situations that I think sometimes we look at the the singular incident and maybe don't recognize or, or acknowledge the the lasting impacts. And I think just as part of our as part of our healing, I think it's important to to realize that sometimes these things are or bigger or have there's effects beyond the the initial thing. Yeah, just and then moving forward in your story that, you know, to be a part of a, a huge natural disaster like that is I think things like that can just shape the way that we see the world and the way that we prioritize things. And sometimes we we can I don't know, it can bring maybe this. I don't know if cynical is right. Right, I don't want to project my my stuff onto you, <laughs> but I had exposure to some some stuff and and it just I don't know, seeing the tremendous hurt that can happen in the world outside of my little bubble. There's certain ways that that made me a little jaded or I don't, it, it just shifted my perspective of the way I saw things, but yeah, absolutely. And you feel completely powerless, you know, it's something that's so out of your control, you know, being involved in any kind of natural disaster, you know, and it's, it's pretty bad luck. You know, I, I just happened to be in, in Thailand at, you know, on that day when there hadn't been a tsunami for, I don't know how many years, but a long time. And it just seemed like, why is this happening to me? Everything is happening to me. And then you get the people who are like, oh, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be given it if you couldn't deal with it. And I just, you know, I, I didn't want it. <laughs> you know, I wanted to go back to how things were and just carry on with my, my life. But you, you know, you can't do that. You're faced with the situation. And I, I basically didn't deal with either. I just wanted attention. I think I wanted to be loved. I was terrified that everyone was going to leave me. So I then just sort of carried on having these really meaningless relationships where I was just craving attention and love from somebody, from really inappropriate people as well, who yeah. treated me badly and didn't see any value and I was just you know desperate for a, a, I wanted marriage I wanted a kid I wanted I wanted that unit you know family unit it, in my mind that was safe yeah. um so I you know I I went through a really bad stage in my 20s um and I think I think I needed I I guess I needed to do that but it it didn't it didn't do me any good at all uh, and I still feel quite a lot of shame around that as well. Again, I don't think I was drinking a, a huge amount around this time. Um, it wasn't, I certainly wasn't using it as a coping mechanism. So yeah, I hadn't really, um, I hadn't really processed either of those things. And then sort of fast forward to my um, late twenties, um, my early thirties, and I got married and um, I had a baby. and. Um, I ended up having, I wasn't a very good pregnant person, <laughs> which I can say now I'm done. I've had three um, and then I bought three beautiful boys, but I found it really hard. I was really sick. Um, you know, you see these beautiful pregnant ladies with this perfect, like, you know, basketball bumps and they just look like Heidi Klum. And I was not like that. I had, I got greasy hair. I got the spots. I felt like I was enormous. I don't think I was now looking at photos, but I felt, I just felt awful. And I felt sick the whole time. 
Um, and again, I was like, oh, why me? Like, why is this happening to me? Um, and I actually ended up having something called uh, preeclampsia mm-hmm. in my first pregnancy, which was undiagnosed. And I um, I started to feel really, really unwell around the six, seven month mark. And I kept going back to hospital. Um, and it's, you know, obviously a little bit different over here, how you kind of uh, the how you have how you have a baby in terms of the hospital and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it was through the NHS, obviously. And um, it was very it was it was really a difficult time. I ended up having a medical intervention, I guess it is. Um, I had a placenta abruption, uh, which is really dangerous for the baby and for me. And I ended up losing a huge amount of blood. And um, there was, he was born prematurely six weeks early. And the whole thing again was terrifying. And uh, becoming a parent as well, becoming a mother, I really missed my mom at that stage. I didn't, you know, I don't think I'd really dealt with it for sort of the 10 years or eight years before that. I just, then it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I just wanted her and no one else would do. And I had this tiny little baby who was, you know, under four pounds um, and I was really unwell. And he was in intensive care for a couple of weeks. So it was a difficult start. And that was quite there was quite a lot of trauma around that as well. So, yeah, I um, in terms of my my drinking, I do think that's probably when things started to pick up a little bit. I had postnatal depression after that. Um, he, you know, dealing with a, a premature baby who's really small, who couldn't feed properly. I was exhausted. And having not come to terms with any of the other stuff that had happened before that was, you know, I just had this other thing to deal with. And again, this wasn't happening to anybody else. I was, I saw all my friends having these beautiful babies and everything was perfect. And I was like, this is, again, like this victim mentality. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, it was it was a really difficult time. I think that just goes to show how we really we really do, in my opinion, uh, I don't like to speak in absolutes, but I think we really do like eventually we're we're forced to face some of the traumas that we've been through. And you know, through your twenties, being able to maybe shelve some of those feelings uh, of losing your mom and then to have uh, you know we've had a our our youngest son was in t- was in intensive care for a few weeks as well when he was a newborn and it's yeah i know that feeling that man i've never known a powerless powerlessness like that than when you're just staring at a tiny baby in a bed and then yeah i can imagine that wanting i think you said it perfectly you wanted your mom and no one else would do you have to you're you're facing that that's tough yeah i did i did really I did. I just, I just didn't deal. I just didn't deal with it well, you know? And yeah, as you know, like having a baby in intensive care is really difficult because you do, you feel completely powerless and you're looking at these doctors just please, you know, make him better. You know, at some, at one stage, I I didn't know if he was going to make it, you know, through the night. He was really, really unwell. He had swallowed a lot of my blood, um, during the, what happened with the C-section and everything. And, um, and he ended up losing a lot more weight and there was an issue with his liver and he couldn't keep his um his body temperature you know the correct temperature and um yeah it was hard it was really hard and um again like you d- you're you're just left with a baby you know you're given this tiny baby at the end of you know 
when he comes out of hospital and you're like, there you go, off you go. And <laughs> take I care of this thing, would you? Yeah. And keep it alive. And it's really, it, you know, it is, it was the one thing that I always wanted. You know, I was always very maternal. I knew that I wanted kids, but it's, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? When you have a, a little baby and my heart, you know, goes out to any of those like new mums who are struggling at the moment. And then, you know, you get the whole mummy wine culture. I'm not going to swear, but it is BS. It really is. And it's just, it needs to be, it needs to be reined in. It's, um, I've, yeah, I've got a real problem with that because it does so much damage. And I don't think people realize mm-hmm. at all about posting these memes and, you know, you deserve it and all that stuff. And um, cause it's just, and it's funny, isn't it? Because it's, so far from the truth of um how you actually should be you know dealing with your stress and your problems and your anxiety especially around motherhood yeah and i think as i think as parents you know i can i can i can't speak as a mom i can speak as a dad but my wife was a mom anyway i think there's a vulnerability just there's you know like you said uh, i think i think postpartum depression is is a huge thing i think a lot of people go through it and there's uh, you know, the same with so much mental health stuff. There's a stigma surrounding it. Like you, sh- you know, we have this idea in our mind that we should be these perfect parents. And if as new parents, there's any sort of stress or, or, or problem, like, I think it's probably normal to internalize that and think that, that, that it's us. It's not that being a parenting is hard. It's just, there's something wrong with me as a parent. And that's why it's hard. And then, you know, exactly what you said, there's these memes and pictures for moms like oh if you're stressed out just your baby's crying have one more sip which is exactly what you said it's it's bs on the dad side of it there's this culture of you know just the dudes having beers while mom's taking care of the kids and it's and that's wrong like that's not right but yeah society isn't doing itself a a lot of favors in terms of mental health for for young parents and new parents and it just normalizes that yeah, I, I really hope um, to see an improvement in that in the next few years. I mean, it definitely has improved, you know, bearing in mind my eldest has just turned 11. So it, it has improved over the last 10 years. But then I was a part of it, you know, until coming up to a year ago. So um, I also don't think I was as aware as I am now of actually how damaging, you know, it can be. Yeah, yeah. let's keep keep going forward. So you've got you've got all your babies and. And you're raising them yep. in the mom thing. You know, you, you mentioned like the influence of that mommy wine culture and yeah, let's just keep going forward with the progression. Yeah. So um, it was definitely after um, my second one um, that my drinking ramped up. I, I think I started to realize that I wasn't happy in myself and as a person really, I, and I didn't know myself at all. I started probably I wasn't aware of that I was drinking too much at the time but it also you know when when you are a parent you're less sociable in the world way of you know my 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 drinking started I'll have a a couple of glasses in the evening you know at home and more than three nights a week you know when it starts to become like a oh it's a Wednesday I'll have a glass of wine or oh, I've just had this really stressful day at work or one of the kids is ill or whatever it is. Um, or it could be a good thing, you know, I could have, um, oh, I've got a pay rise at work. I'll have a glass of wine. And it they, these became um, more and more common. So 
I definitely think that was, so this is around my mid, well, late thirties. So around 37, 38, um, it definitely started picking up then. And I still hadn't clocked that I hadn't dealt with any of the traumas or the grief before. I just hadn't. And so I then went on to have my my littlest one, who's two and a half, and I had him during lockdown. And obviously, uh, COVID and lockdown, you know, here and in, in the States was so difficult for so many people on so many different levels. Um, but being pregnant in COVID was another you know, it uh, is a another dynamic really, and that was quite quite full on. Um, and because I was high risk as well, um, I was meant to be seeing the doctor more, but that didn't happen. And then I ended up again having a premature baby with my third one, who was also really unwell uh, when he was born. So that punched me in the face. I was that took me right back to when my eldest one was little, and I couldn't deal with it. Um, it was my husband who had to go down and be in NICU. Um, I was, um, I actually had another C-section that, so I, whenever I went down to see the baby, I'd faint, I'd get like these, I, it was just too much emotionally. I just couldn't deal with it. And I think my brain was just, just shut off. I can't, you know, I can't process this at all. So, um, when we finally did get him out of hospital, when he was about three weeks old, that first day I ended up having some rosé and I had after you know, I, my pregnancies were fine, actually. I should just say that in terms of my drinking. You know, I had maybe the odd glass of red wine here or there, but nothing, you know, I was I was able to moderate then and or, or actually like eliminate it pretty much totally. That was never really a problem for me. But as soon as, you know, I got him home, I that's when I, you know, it started. And he was a really good baby. So he slept, he slept pretty well. And yeah, it, it was fine for me to have a few glasses of wine each night. My little one would end up, I would go to bed early and my husband would do that sort of 10, 11 o'clock feed. And then I would do the, you know, 2, 3 a.m. feed. Um, but I had, you know, enough sleep for about that sort of five hours um, that the wine I, I guess didn't really affect me from that stage. It wasn't, I wasn't waking up with awful headaches or hangovers or anything like that. And then I, you know, then the, then he would sleep through till seven. So we were really, really lucky. And that went off on for a few, a few um, weeks, but I just really felt everything basically caught up with me at that stage. I should also say actually that although this isn't my story to tell, something else did happen. So my best friend's husband took his own life just between my second and third baby. And it's, I'm not going to obviously go into that, but that I, that really got me as well, you know, seeing someone that you love so much going through that. And um, it was really difficult, however selfish that might sound from my point of view, but seeing, you know, one minute someone is there and then one minute someone isn't there. It just reminded me again of everything that I went through with my mom. And I, I think, that and then my little one being in um, intensive care again properly pushed me over the edge. And I honestly, I think I, m- my body and my brain just said, this is enough now. You know, you need to start holding yourself accountable for what you're doing. And I really realized that I was drinking too much to cover up all of this stuff. You know, I needed to face this trauma and grief and deal with it like an adult, you know, and stop blaming 
other people. And um, yeah, which is what I think I've done or I'm trying to do anyway. Yeah. And again, I just like, once again, I just want to acknowledge, like, I think we need to, I think it's important that we give ourselves permission to, to feel that grief. And there may be, there may be people in those situations who, who feel it more or, or who are closer to that situation than we are. But like, it's, I think it's still okay that we have still okay that we have grief. I, I, I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors by making it this hierarchical thing. Well, well, it was their spouse, not mine. So they can grieve, but I can't like, we all can. It's okay. Cause again, these, these things impact us. And I don't know if it's society or, or just ourselves or what it is, but I think so many of us have felt like, well, that's, that's not for me. Like I'm not, I'm not allowed to feel that. But meanwhile, like our bodies and our brains and our, our spirit is, is trying to feel these things. But if we don't allow it to, if we just compartmentalize it, it, I believe it builds up and then it, it manifests in other ways, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of this drinking can come in. It's like, I think I should feel this, but I kind of don't want to, but I got this ticket. There's this thing. So I just don't have to worry about it for today. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to feel it anymore. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. I was feeling everything too deeply and I didn't want to feel it anymore. And the drink for me was, you know, I was self-medicating. Definitely. And I can see that now. Um, but I didn't have any other tools. I didn't know what I didn't know what else to do. Um, my anxiety, I, I definitely had a, a lot of anxiety around my 20s after the tsunami. And but, it, you know, that's kind of 18 years ago. And people didn't really talk about anxiety at all. And it that's got progressively worse. And then I've had sort of up and down um, feelings of like mild depression. But it was definitely around that sort of period of time that I I was you know I started getting suicidal thoughts which is which is terrifying for when I think I'm a rational person and thinking even for for five minutes thinking that your family would be better off if you're not here is you know when you're of sound mind and right now I can say that is crazy my boys my husband need me you know loads of people need me here and but when you're in it and you're feeling really, really low, you just want to disappear. And um, that was terrifying. And I went to the doctor and I spoke to my therapist and I said, I'm worried about the amount I'm drinking. And I basically got told that I didn't have a problem and have some more medication or try a different medication or, you know, oh, the, the best one was my GP asking me um, if I took multivitamins when I was telling him that I was drinking a bottle of wine like five nights a week. He goes, are you taking vitamins? Um, I was like, I think my problem is um, worse than just a few vitamins. So I, I wasn't, you know, I was asking for help, but I was obviously asking the wrong people because I was not getting it. Um, my husband was always very, very supportive and he never really thought that I had a drinking issue. He definitely thought I was drinking too much um, on occasion. But he, when I did end up going to AA, he didn't, he he was almost like, I don't think you need to be going to AA. And I was like, this was in my head for two or three years. I was, you know, it, it felt like I was being tormented. My mind, my, this crazy, busy mind, just constantly trying to moderate that I couldn't, it was taking up so much of my brain power and my space that I had to do something about it. You know, I, 
just knew there was something not right. And I was definitely asking the wrong people. There is help available, but obviously not where I was initially looking for it. You know, I was just talking with a friend about that. The other day, there's, I mean, if we're drinking a bottle of wine today, a a day, I don't want to make any assessments on anybody who might be listening, but I I think that's, I think that warrants looking for some intervention and and trying to find the right place that's going to support you. I say that without judgment, but that's plenty. But there's there's a lot of us where like on paper, we have these people in our lives. And and even if they're well-intentioned, you know, because I had people tell me I was drinking like six cases of beer a week. This is American beer, so it's piss water. But <laughs> it, it was, you know, I was drinking that much, but but people didn't necessarily see it. And there was, you know, outside looking in, you we're still, you know, we can be successful at work. We can be functional as families, but exactly what you said, like the amount of mental energy that we put into whether it's controlling or acquiring or hiding that, that, that mental component, just the amount of work, it, it may not look like this stereotype of alcoholism or, or what we think a person who is struggling with, with a substance looks like, but it's, it's it's internal yeah a hundred percent no one would have thought that I had an issue with alcohol you know even my husband didn't think I had an issue with alcohol so anybody you know my mum friends or um you know anyone in my work situation you know I've got my own company and it's successful so no on the outside and it wasn't affecting my work at all I was able to get up, take the kids to school. I wasn't day drinking or anything like that. You know, I was able to get to five, six o'clock before I'd have a glass of wine. I wasn't drinking spirits or, you know, anything heavy. But um, but yeah, it 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 creeps up on you, doesn't it? And it does. It is mental energy. That is exactly what it is. It just took up so much time, so much energy. And I spent so long trying to moderate as well, which is exhausting. You know, I used to always do dry January. I would uh, stop for a couple of weeks here or there. I I think I did six or excluding my pregnancies. I did, you know, six or seven weeks before I would do like a 10K run or something like that. But my prize would always be, oh, when I finish the run, I'll have, you know, I have a lovely glass of rosé. Or there was always, that was always, that my intention was never, ever to stop drinking alcohol. I just wanted to be fixed and I wanted to be able to drink like a normal person. And I couldn't mm-hmm. um, because I was using it to medicate. And until I'd addressed that problem fully, you know, I was never going to be able to, you know, moderate. Yeah. It just wasn't going to happen. I think there's, oh, I wish I knew, I wish I knew the big book better. <laughs> but I think there's uh, a line somewhere in the big book of AA that talks about there is nothing that, uh, there's nothing that an alcoholic wants more than to be able to drink like a like a like a quote unquote normal person, and they will we will go to the ends of the earth see, seeking that. That's a painful place to be. I wanted to ask when did you when did you first try your hand at AA, and was there was there anything like any event in particular that that got you to the point that you wanted to try it, or is it just kind of a culmination of things? Yeah, so I had, I didn't have a rock bottom, you know, I've been high functioning. um, And as I said, no one else would know that I had an issue at all. 
but it got to a point, I would say about six months before I got sober. So we're talking August um, 21. And I we were on holiday and we, we were actually down in Cornwall. Um, it was when like we still really weren't meant to be going abroad. Um, and we were down in Cornwall, which is like the very southwest, the little foot at the end um, of England. And um, it's really beautiful down there amazing beaches if you haven't been and um we were down there with um another like a really good family friend of ours and um I I would be drinking like a bottle of wine to myself when they would be having a couple of glasses and they um would go out for like a few hours and I'd make excuses to stay at home because you know the baby's napping or whatever and then I would drink a bottle of you know, I was on holiday, like, why not? I'll just drink a bottle of wine to myself while they're out. So I was, I knew there was an issue. And I basically think I had some sort of, I, I don't, it wasn't, I wasn't diagnosed with having a breakdown, but honestly, it was, it was scary. I broke down in tears. I was, I wasn't really in my right mind. I was having these, um, I was yelling at my husband. I started really scaring him I was scratching at my arms like digging my nails into my arms and I just and I don't really remember much about it I wanted help so much and I didn't know what to do and that was the first time the next day um, when I was obviously feeling awful and I was feeling ashamed and I just wanted it to stop and I remember looking um, on my phone for AA meetings uh, near my home and or I and I did a you know am I an alcoholic um, questionnaire right on um, my phone and I didn't lie this time you know I answered I don't know they had twelve questions or something and if it says if you've answered more than three of these right and I had answered about eight of them or wrong I should say but if you said yes to eight or more yeah. of them then you probably got an issue and I had and um, but I didn't stop I didn't stop then. I tried to moderate again. So after the holiday, I was like, right, that's it. I'm going to do another couple of weeks. I, I know I can do a couple of weeks. And I did a couple of weeks. But then, you know, things just start happening again, don't they? You kind of, um, I, oh, I won't drink at home or I won't drink during the week. or And it just, you get put back in the same place again. So the actual pinnacle, um, my last day drinking. Yeah, it was nothing spectacular. We had people over for dinner. This was in April, uh, end of April last year. We had people over for dinner. Everyone was drinking. I had a shocking hangover, really shocking. Um, I was sick. Um, I had to do something the next day in our village. Um, there was like a run in our village and I was marshalling. So I had to like stand and direct people. And um, halfway through the run, I I threw up behind the bush. Um, no one saw me, but I and I didn't tell anyone. But I I felt so much shame and so much guilt about that. I just felt I hated myself, and I I just thought, what are you doing? Like this can't go on. And that was the Sunday, and then the Monday night, I went to my first AA meeting and have never looked back. Yeah, not a. Not a real glamorous moment, I believe. Oh, horrendous. But at uh, man, it feels hard to say that 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 is a blessing. But I think I think we know, like those of us on this side of it today, like we know that those like those moments are a blessing. That's whatever it takes to be that catalyst to to get us to take that that next step. How did it feel to walk into into that first meeting? Oh, I was terrified. 
I was terrified that a that I'd see someone that I knew. Um, I was I didn't know what to expect. You know, I, when I told my husband that I was going, he was supportive, but he also was like, "I don't think you need this." And I was like, "Oh, I, I don't have another option. There's, I need to get, I need to stop drinking, and I don't have a, another option." But yeah, I was, I was terrified, and I walked in to that meeting, which I still go to sometimes. It's not my home group, but I still go sometimes, and I was greeted by just these lovely smiling people and I just wanted to go and be anonymous you know literally anonymous I wanted to go and no one to look at me no one to talk to me I just wanted to sit down and listen and see if I'd get some miracle bit of information that would um well at this time I didn't actually want to stop drinking Uh I just wanted to moderate I just wanted to learn how to moderate I wanted to learn how to be like a normal quote person um, and I was like, AA will definitely do that because I know I'm not a park bench drinker, right? So I went to this meeting and this wonderful woman who's now my sponsor came and sat next to me and she asked me my name and she gave me a hug and I burst into tears. And I just felt the relief that I felt being there and being understood. And, you know, there's all, there's so many different levels on there. And, you know, yes, I didn't have a rock bottom you know, lots of other people wouldn't have necessarily thought that I had a drinking problem, but I knew that I was in the right place. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's, uh, I think it was a similar experience for me. Like when I went to, I went to treatment and I bought Annie Grace's book. I was like, I'm going to, these things, I'm going to go to treatment. Rehab is going to be the ticket for me to, to drink normally. Cause it was, I don't know. Like, I just didn't want to give it up. It was, it was too much for me to bear the idea of abstinence forever. And who knows? I mean, that's, that's my plan, but, but who knows, but like in those moments, like, ah, maybe I can learn how to moderate a little bit better, but I think that's a beautiful moment to be able to, uh, I'm glad that you had that woman come up to you and to just have that moment of release. And there's, there's something really special about being in a space where we can, we can just look around and just know that they get it. Like our, our stories might be different, but they're, but they're also the same. I was meant to be there. I was meant to be there that day. I was meant to be sitting next to her. You know, she's a diamond and she's added so much to my life. She really has. That's beautiful. Well, uh, oh my goodness. We are almost to the, the rapid fire round, but just before we get to that, I just want to just briefly, um, since that day, what, what does the last uh, 10 months look like? What does it look like as far as, you know, your relationship with your, with your boys and, and with your husband and, and with yourself? How, how have the last 10 months felt? Yeah, I'm so pleased you asked that. I can't tell you how great the last 10 months have been. You know, obviously, I'm not going to lie. The first couple of months were difficult. I was learning a lot. I'm still learning a lot. But after about four or five months, things really shifted for me. Um, I realized that it's not just about the drink and trying to stop drinking. Sobriety is so much more than that. You know, I've learned so much about myself. I've been able to deal with these traumas and things that have happened in my life. Um, It makes me a better wife, you know, a much better mother. I'm better at work. I'm more productive. There's, yeah, there's so much, you know, that I'm now able to deal with um, head on. Um, and I'm just so excited for the future now. I can really, I know that I'm never going to drink again, you know, 
it doesn't add anything to my life at all. And the things that I get and the positive things um, that have happened to me in the last 10 months are just mind blowing. You know, I don't argue with my husband about stupid stuff anymore. You know, we we connect so much better. And, you know, he said that he, it makes me a better person. Um, and my kids say that, you know, they don't know. They're too young really to understand. And luckily they didn't really see me drinking ever. Um, but they would, um, my eldest one does say that I'm less grumpy. So I'll take that. That's kind of a humbling thing to hear sometimes from our kids. But I had a, a an old timer at an AA meeting tell me one time I, I mentioned my my son had said something something, something similar about, oh, you, well, you're not mean like you used to be. And I'm like, holy, I, holy shit. You know, like that, oh, that kind of stings a little. And I, I brought it up at the AA meeting and um, this gentleman looks at me and he's like, you never stop those kids from saying that. He's like, cause he's like, I get it. It might hurt a little bit to, to think back about what, what things were like. He's like, but the fact that they're able to say that in front of you, he goes, they they can say that because they trust you. He's like, they're not trying to hurt you. They trust you and they know they feel safe around you. He's like, and it, it might not feel that way, but that's what it is, is because you, you've created a space now where they can, they can be open and they can tell you things like that because they know that you're not going to like, you know, hurt them or, or, or be upset. And, and yeah. And they're your why, right. You know, yeah. they're one of the reasons why you're, you know, why you're, why you're sober and why you want to stay sober. Well, they are for me anyway. You know, yeah. that's really yeah, the sure. big one for me. Well, Susanna, we better get to our rapid fire round in 30 to 60 seconds. Uh, I'll ask you to answer these questions. Are you ready? I think so. All right. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? So failure was definitely my biggest fear. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do it and I wouldn't be able to stick to it because it hadn't worked before. Um, so yeah, that's definitely fear of failure. You're in good company there. Uh, number two, what is a positive that you didn't expect in a life without alcohol? I mean, this is a mad question, isn't it? Because there's so many, um, but sleep, oh my goodness. Oh, the sleep is so good. And I never you know, thought that after about 15 years of insomnia, the sleep is amazing. Oh, and the so my skin, the sober glow. Um, yeah, no one tells you that stuff. Yeah, I love it. What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Yeah, so I know you're a fan of the uh, sparkling water. A little um, bit. Here in the UK, we have something called Dash, which is exactly that. So it's sparkling water and they add um, a little bit of wonky fruit to it. So it's zero calories, zero sugar, and it's really good. And I do love a strong coffee as well. Dash. All right. I'm going to be researching Dash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Yeah, so I, you know, I still do, I have to do a lot of work. Um, I, I, you know, I'll still be going to my meetings. Um, I'm, I'm excited to know what's coming next. You know, if I've come this far in 10 months, I'm really, really, I know it just gets better. So um, I want to keep going. I've, I've got my own Instagram page, Sparati Instagram, um, which is sober.learning. Um, and I, um, I'm going to really make an effort um, on there. But um, yeah, a lot of reading, um, a lot of podcasts, 
um, and just learning more about myself and being um, as positive um, and kind and help people as well. That's what I really like to do. I want to, all right, so this is something I wrote down as we were talking and I wanna, this is an impromptu follow-up that we'll throw here in the rapid fire round. What advice would you give to someone who is is facing some of those those past traumas someone who's maybe for the first time facing some of those tough things that that they've been burying or or hiding from themselves what advice would you give to someone who's starting to crack open that box and look into those things yeah you know it's really scary it's a scary place to be so i would um i would say talk about it to kind understanding people who you know who love you and who listen to you and start to learn about yourself and if you are you know using um any kind of medication try and um work out who you are and what your what what it is exactly you're trying to cover up you know what what do you need help with and um write write things down that really helps i think and um yeah any kind of anything that you can do as a growth mindset. So whether that be like reading or listening to podcasts or whatever it is um, that you think is gonna, or you know, that you would like to learn about and learn about yourself, I would do that. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, so the best advice I have ever had was at my first AA meeting. It was um, look for the similarities and not the differences. Um, and the same with, you know, these podcasts. You might be like this, she's nothing like me or, you know, I, I don't drink like that or whatever. But there's got to be some similarities in these people that you're listening to on these podcasts and reading about because that's that's a key for me. You know, listen to listen to those people. And um, yeah, and everyone has more in common than you think. Yeah. Great advice. Susanna, last but certainly not least, what is your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. Okay. So you might need to ditch the booze if you're waking up in the morning hungover with half a bottle of wine left in the fridge and you're pouring it down the sink and swearing that you're never going to drink again. And then eight or nine hours later, you're going back to the shop and buying another glass bottle of wine to do exactly the same thing. Yeah, there's a a real nasty cycle that can take place with, uh, I don't want to tell anybody to not throw it away. (laughs) There's, we've we've heard a lot of stories of that (laughs) down the drain and then hold on, I got to go fill the pantry again. Susanna, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. I just, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, sister. We'll talk to you soon. Be well. Thanks for listening, Ari. And thank you, Susanna, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. Susanna and I talked a little bit after the interview about her experience with the tsunami. On the day I'm recording this, I'm packing up to head out to training to be a peer supporter for people who have been impacted by critical incidents, natural disasters being one of those. I heard about this program at work and was immediately interested. I'm so grateful for the opportunities that have been placed in front of me as a result of my sobriety. In active addiction, I never would have tried to volunteer for this type of service, and honestly, I probably would have been too hungover to even hear about it. That's the beauty of recovery. These chances keep showing up to put the healing that we've done to good work. How about you, Ari? 
What's happened in your life that you wouldn't have expected when you were drinking? Have you been able to show up for people in a way that wasn't possible before? Have you been able to pursue a dream of yours or have new dreams become unlocked now that booze is out of the picture? Let us know. That's all we've got today. And remember that the only way out is through. I love you guys. Get it.